Welcome to Global Girl Squad. Welcome to Global Girl Squad. This is the first of a two-part episode dedicated to Planned Parenthood to raise funds. I've created an Everyday Hero page because through the Developing Leaders program, I've been given the opportunity to give back to an organization that changed my life in November of 2014. I finally feel comfortable enough to share how they did so for the first time in hopes that you too will understand just how amazing this organization is. As a privilege of being a DLP member, each of us has been asked to raise at least $300 during our program year. But for your support, I want to give you something in return. I've been working on a very special project for a while called Global Girl Squad. Global Girl Squad is a podcast about women but with two halves, Global Girl Squad Maine, dedicated to awareness and advocacy, and Global Girl Squad, the series, dedicated to culture and crime. The launch date for the entire project is February 15th, but I want to release this special two-part episode to raise funds for Planned Parenthood, fuel your fire to continue to combat this prejudiced, divisive administration, and in hopes that you will continue to support the podcast mission to do the same on a global scale come February 15th. Now I'm going to share a secret that I've kept for over two years. This is terrifying for me, but my fear isn't greater than my desire to address stigma and spread awareness. So here we go. Let's travel back to a Friday in the middle of November of 2014. On that day, I took off work, not revealing the actual reason, but only to two friends, which was that I was scheduled to have an abortion. During the three weeks prior to my appointment, I researched the process and decided that I was a perfect candidate for the medical procedure. I would take one pill in office on that day and then take another over the weekend at my apartment where I would experience all the possible side effects and comfortable but secret shame. I can still remember that on the third day of my period being late, that I knew something was wrong because my cycle is as regular and certain as the sunrise and sunset. I can remember that I waited a week after that to buy a test, which took me 30 minutes to settle on as I didn't want anyone to see me hovering in that section and wanted to be the only person in line when I get to the register to complete the transaction quickly. I can still remember waiting for what seemed like the longest three minutes of my life to see two pink lines show up. Then I took another test, which confirmed my reality when the word pregnant was literally spelled out in front of me. I can remember deciding that crying in the shower about it would be the best place to do so. Less suspicious just in case I encountered anyone before bed. I can remember lying in bed, staring at the ceiling, barely sleeping for work the next day. I can remember calling Planned Parenthood to make an appointment for three weeks later. I can remember mentally being in a zombie-like state while outwardly not letting anyone think a single thing was wrong. Over the next three weeks, numerous people asked me the fairly innocuous question of how I was doing, and I gave them the same answer I always did, which was that I was doing just fine. Three weeks dragged on, and the day of my appointment was finally here. Because of the research I had done, I was less nervous than I would have been had I not done any, and was prepared to take the weekend to put it behind me. The thing is that there's a saying about having a plan and either God or fate having another, which became more than just a saying on that Friday. So I walked into Planned Parenthood determined and sure. Still, I check in, barely whispering to the friendly desk clerk why I was there before filling out paperwork and waiting until my name was called. Finally, my name was called, and I followed the nurse to the back. We go through all of the normal motions of taking my blood pressure, weight, etc., and then she drew some blood before telling me that the doctor would be with me shortly. In the meantime, she gave me a small portable DVD player to watch a short video on what happens during an abortion. 
Then in comes the doctor asking me how I was, and there I go talking a mile a minute, obviously not nearly as calm as I thought I was. I started asking her if there were any particular things that I shouldn't do when I took the final dose at home. She said that I wouldn't have to worry about that because I wasn't a candidate for a medical abortion. I'm looking at her wondering how I couldn't be because I'd done all of the proper calculations. And by my calculations, from the day after my last period ended, put me at nine weeks pregnant. In reality, you're supposed to calculate from the first day of your last menstrual period, which actually put me at 10 weeks. But that is not what made me ineligible for the medical abortion. You see, when my blood was drawn, not only did the results confirm that I was pregnant, but it also recorded my hemoglobin count. For those of you who don't know what hemoglobin is, it is a protein in your red blood cells that carries oxygen throughout the body to regulate things such as your energy level. A normal hemoglobin count for a woman is 12. I was sitting at a level 7, so my math was just fine. It was my severely low hemoglobin count, or anemia, that did me in. As she explained this to me, I felt this incredible burst of heat throughout my body, got dizzy, and vomited. This was neither the day nor the circumstance under which I wanted to learn something new. I was totally unprepared for this change and that my ordeal wouldn't be over on my terms by the end of the weekend. Also, morning sickness is a myth. It's actually all day sickness. After I gathered myself in disbelief, I found myself lying on a bed with a cold liquid being rubbed over my abdomen, which somewhat pulled me out of my trance. Apparently, sometime between puking and dry heaving, I'd agreed to a sonogram, and there we were. Then she began to spread the liquid around using an instrument, and lo and behold, a picture popped up on the screen. In that particular moment, I couldn't be sure if I was disappointed about my change in circumstance or that I was looking at something that I was saying hello and goodbye to at the same time. Thinking back, I can't tell you whether or not I would have changed my mind if I'd seen more than one image pop up on the screen. But I can tell you that I was feeling something for which I had no words to describe. It was a combination of awe and disappointment. Then she asked me an unexpected question for which I gave an unexpected answer. I said yes that I would like a printed copy of my sonogram. While she sent the nurse to retrieve the printout, she explained to me what would happen in the surgical procedure. The thing is that I already knew what would happen, which is why I was banking on having a medical abortion. Of course, I was terrified, but when she asked me if I would have a friend accompany me to the procedure so that I could leave the clinic immediately afterwards, or if I would wait in the recovery room until I could leave on my own, I chose a latter option. As I walked out of the clinic on Friday, she gave me the details regarding my appointment to take place the next day, being Saturday. So I had less than 24 hours to prepare myself for something I'd shut out of my mind as a possibility. To be completely honest, looking back, I had plenty of practice before then in hiding my trauma. Whether it was being a person of color, being called racial slurs at age 10, stomaching microaggressions as my awareness grew with age, or as a victim of domestic and sexual violence, being publicly mocked on social media for somehow causing those things to happen to me. Time moved slowly over the next few hours, so around 9 p.m. I decided that with only 12 hours to go that I at least tried to pretend to sleep. Then my mother called. Now I can tell you something that maybe only first-generation daughters might understand, but growing up, I did not have the greatest relationship with my mother. You see, I was born in the U.S., and she was born in Liberia. We didn't communicate very well during my formative years, which probably has something to do with why I only applied to out-of-state colleges. To my recollection, from age 10 to 22, I didn't understand my mother, nor did she me, so there were plenty of hurt feelings on both ends. Fast forward six years to when she called me on the eve of my surgical abortion, and even though we'd made so much progress in our relationship, I still wasn't sure if me divulging my secret would be a good idea, as she'd been very religious my entire life, one of the subjects that caused much strife between us over the years. Even now, as I tell you my story, I still haven't told her, but if she finds out, oh well. It wasn't only her devotion that gave me pause. Coincidentally, Two months before that night, somehow we got on the topic of abortion. 
She said that if I ever got pregnant, that she'd want me to keep the baby and that she would even take care of the child. I knew that I wouldn't want that. So when she called me on that night, I figured that her prior hypothetical stance would be the same in this very real situation and knew that we already disagreed. Thinking that way didn't make it any easier because I'd already avoided going to visit her for a month because I was convinced that somehow at two and a half months pregnant that she would notice, even though I was not showing at all. My mom has been a neonatal nurse for over 30 years, so I didn't even want to stay on the phone with her for very long, convinced that she would be able to sense the fetus through our connection. So I cut the conversation short and deferred yet another visit. But I did feel terrible because I did not want to make her feel bad for actually putting effort into repairing our relationship. The last thing that I would say about having a contentious relationship is to talk to your mom. It took one conversation in 2010 for us to take a major turn in our relationship where she revealed to me that she too was a victim of domestic and sexual violence. That conversation helped illuminate years of frustration and pain I'd stored up because not only did I realize that we shared terrible experiences, but that due to her culture and upbringing, she was never able nor allowed to cry, talk, or even feel anything about what happened to her. I can remember her telling me, even at age eight, that I shouldn't cry, so I pretty much never did growing up. She was never given the tools on how to raise a daughter, so she just did what she knew. Since I turned to education advocacy to cope with my trauma, I've been able to show her ways to cope with hers. So if you're listening right now, whether or not you are a first-generation daughter born to immigrant parents, talk to your mother. Yes, she may have brought you into the world and constantly be driving you crazy, but telling you she's wiser, among other things. But that still doesn't mean that she knows everything. Maybe you can teach her something. Maybe you can break the cycle. There's only one of you and one of her. Even if it doesn't work, when one of you leaves this earth, you won't have the chance to relieve the pain that you've been carrying for 10 years or the pain that she's been carrying for over 50. The next 12 hours passed in the blink of an eye, and there I was in a very different office for a different procedure, surgical. Again, I filled out the paperwork and waited for my name to be called. But I was much more nervous than the day before. This time when the nurse walked me to the back, I entered a very different room. I lay on a different table. This time, instead of resting my feet flat, I put them into stirrups. Again, the nurse told me the doctor would be with me shortly. In that five-minute interim, I took inventory of every crack in the ceiling, the overwhelming smell of alcohol, which surprisingly didn't make me nauseous, the buzzing of the lights, the six, almost eight-inch-long needles that I knew were about to be inserted inside of me, and the big white machine on the ground that I'd never seen before. By the time the nurse walked to the back, my entire body was shaking, even my teeth were chattering, and I was on the verge of tears, desperately trying to hold it together as I'd done for the past three weeks. The doctor introduced herself and told me what I already knew again, each step of the procedure, which she said would take less than 15 minutes. I just nodded and expected to go through the next 15 minutes without uttering a word. But then she too asked me an unexpected question. Are you here alone? And that's when I lost it. Everything I had been holding in for the past three weeks. I knew that I was physically alone at the clinic that day by choice, but the truth is that I felt alone in every sense of the word during the three weeks between taking my pregnancy test and my appointment, maybe even earlier. Then she asked if I notified the sperm donor, and I told her yes. And for your information, no, I did not text nor tell them in person. Just know that I notified them to let them know what I was about to do, never asking for assistance in any fashion, including accompaniment. I didn't expect much of him in general or relationships anyway. That was an internal dialogue that I was having and didn't share at the moment as I couldn't do much more than nod my head as the rest of my body was seizing with emotion. But then she did something I didn't come across when I researched surgical abortion. She sat down in the chair next to me, grabbed my hand and asked if I still wanted to go through with it if I thought that I was making the right decision. 
Another the most certain yes I'd given her all day. Then she told me that they were both there with me and would help me through it. She gave my hand to the nurse and moved into position to start the procedure. I looked at the both of them, complete strangers to me, and let me tell you what I didn't see. I didn't see that same blame in their faces that I saw when people I've known for my entire life found out that I was in an abusive relationship. I didn't see the same look of disappointment, of judgment, of confusion as how I got myself raped by that same abusive boyfriend. When they said that they were there to help, I actually believed them, and my body began to relax. She waited 30 more seconds so that I could try to calm down before she delivered the anesthesia because I needed to be as still as possible. She counted down as she inserted the needles. Six, five, four, three, two, one. So that I would know when she was almost done. By the time she got down to the final needle, I felt dizzy. Then she turned on that big white machine, which sounded like a washing machine during the spin cycle, but there was no pain. And then, just like she promised, it was complete. As I got over my grogginess in the recovery room with crackers and apple juice, I signed a few more papers. When they deemed me capable, I expressed my gratitude before exiting the clinic the same way I came in, alone. But I left Planned Parenthood that day with a lot more than I expected to on that Saturday afternoon. I left with a feeling I'd learned years before isn't guaranteed to be expressed by those closest to you, even in your greatest time of need. They did much more than perform a procedure for me. Those strangers, from the front desk to those in the recovery room, but especially that nurse and the doctor, made me feel for the first time, when I was at my most vulnerable and open, acceptance. I will never forget what they did for me, and why they did it for the rest of my life. That is the end of my story, but I've chosen to cover Planned Parenthood and abortion in two episodes. This first one explaining why Planned Parenthood is a national treasure, and the second as a proud student of their Developing Leaders program, where I will share everything I've learned thus far in the nine-month program and equip you with the knowledge so that the next time someone tries to hit you with that slick talk, whether it's face-to-face or virtually, you can shut them down. Before I present you with the first of our inspirational speeches about Planned Parenthood, I would like to talk more about the concept of the entire Global Girl Squad project in hopes that some of you listening will want to fill some of the vacancies to complete our ensemble by February 15th. Personally, going from an ignorant and experienced teenager to a survivor of domestic and sexual violence, I know firsthand just how dangerous the deep chasm is between the uneducated critics of trauma and the truth coming from those who have experienced it can be. This chasm is dangerous because it prevents so many women from speaking up, speaking out, and getting the help they need to cope with their experiences, including domestic violence, rape, molestation, and prejudice based on their sexuality, religious affiliation, gender identity, or handicapableness. Women may stay suspended in their trauma based on miseducation, lies, fear, and stigma, which can lead to debilitating depression, self-harm, suicide, and homicide. I hope that this half of the Global Girl Squad podcast, being Global Girl Squad Maine, can use narrative-based advocacy to close the gap between victims, the listeners who love them, and the support to get the care and services they need. As a personal goal, because I know from experience, I want listeners to realize that the trauma that they are experiencing, which often makes you feel defeated, especially when you turn on your television or get on a computer, is actually something that so many others are feeling and that it is not your fault. There's absolutely nothing wrong with you because of it. Above all, I want Global Girl Squad to be an interactive collective of stories, which I couldn't ask you to do if I hadn't done so myself. I hope that I did so sufficiently today with telling part of my story. I want Global Girl Squad to be a way for us to address, discuss, disagree on the hardest and least spoken of subjects by society, so that by the end of each episode, we leave educated and with a greater understanding and respect for victims and survivors. 
But above all else, that no matter where you are in the world, that when you listen to us, that you are beautiful, purposefully made, and you are not alone. But to make any of that happen, I need your help. As I explained earlier, the Global Girl Squad podcast is actually twofold. One half of the podcast, for which this two-part episode is teasing, is called Global Girl Squad Maine, dedicated to awareness and advocacy. Between now and February 15th, we have vacancies that need to be filled by you. I'm looking for female overseas hosts, meaning those who live outside of the U.S., features for first-person storytelling, experts in topics to be specified to serve as guests, writers, musicians, and illustrators to complete our ensemble. The other half, Global Girl Squad, the series, will be dedicated to culture and crime. This is for all like-minded folks who think that a marathon of SNAP sounds way better than going to a bar on a Saturday night. Men can and should apply to to get involved, especially in areas such as research and administrative posts. So if you want to learn more and apply, please visit Global Girl Squad Maine's Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash GGS Maine and Global Girl Squad the series at www.facebook.com forward slash GGS the series. Twitter and Instagram handles to follow. Coming off the high of attending the Women's March in D.C., one of the high priestesses of nasty in the reproductive rights division, Cecile Richards, told us that Republicans have announced for the thousandth time that they plan to defund Planned Parenthood in their first 100 days of Trump's unpresidency. Oh yeah? Over my damn uterus. Considering that when some of my badass classmates and teachers walked the few blocks of Paul Ryan's office to drop off petitions adorned with the signatures of over 87,000 supporters, he blocked their delivery with six security guards. The thing that some of you listening might not know is that usually when petitions are dropped off, at the very least, an indentured staffer will open the door to tell you that they don't give a gift wrap damn about you. They didn't even bother to do that, hence the trending hashtag from about a month ago, Paul Ryan's so scared. After the amazingness that was a women's march, let's keep him that way. Since I'm living in the maelstrom of this hellscape, I want to keep you updated through posts, tweets, and photos on what happens here during these first 100 days if you're somehow still breathing after the first seven. I also want you to keep me updated on how you are rising where you are, because whether you live or visited this alleged swamp for the march, or if you took it to the streets elsewhere, it's only the beginning and the real work begins now. As a gentle reminder, I need for you to join me for part two of this episode, while I will share some of the knowledge I've learned as a member of this year's Developing Leaders Program 2017 class under Planned Parenthood. Now for our final segment of part one of this two-part episode, listen to the August 2015 speech that Queen Elizabeth Warren delivered on the Senate floor, explaining why she opposed Republicans' 500th attempt to defund Planned Parenthood. Remember to click the link to donate to Planned Parenthood. I can't wait for you to join me as hosts, storytellers, musicians, supporters, listeners, and survivors so that Global Girl Squad can become more than a podcast, but a movement. So watch out, world. The Global Girl Squad is coming, and the forecast says it's going to get nasty. Talk to you soon. I come to the Senate floor today to ask my Republican colleagues a question. Do you have any idea what year it is? Did you fall down, hit your head, and think you woke up in the 1950s or the 1890s? Should we call for a doctor? Because I simply cannot believe that in the year 2015, the United States Senate would be spending its time trying to defund women's health care centers. You know, on second thought, maybe I shouldn't be that surprised. The Republicans have had a plan for years to strip away women's rights to make choices over our own bodies. Just look at the recent facts. In 2013, Republicans threatened to shut down the government unless they could change the law to let employers deny women access to birth control. In March of this year, 
Republicans held up a non-controversial bipartisan bill to stop human trafficking. Why? Because they demanded new anti-abortion restrictions to cover private funding meant to help the victims of human trafficking. In June, House Republicans passed a budget eliminating funding for the Title X Family Planning Program, the only federal grant program that provides birth control, HIV tests, STD screening, and other preventive services for poor and uninsured people. Over the past few years, Republicans have voted to repeal the Affordable Care Act more than 50 times, including the portions that require insurers to cover contraception. And let's be clear, it's not just Congress. Over the past five years, Republican state legislators have passed nearly 300 new restrictions on abortion access. This year alone, Republican state legislators have passed more than 50 new restrictions on women's access to legal health care. So, Mr. President, Madam President, let's be really clear about something. The Republican scheme to defund Planned Parenthood is not some sort of surprised response to a highly edited video. Nope, the Republican vote to defund Planned Parenthood is just one more piece of a deliberate, methodical, orchestrated right-wing attack on women's rights. And I'm sick and tired of it. Women everywhere are sick and tired of it. The American people are sick and tired of it. Scheduling this vote during the week of a big Fox News presidential primary debate, days before candidates take trips to Iowa or New Hampshire, isn't just some clever gimmick. This is an all-out effort to build support to take away a woman's right to control her own body and access to medical care she may need. Now, this affects all of us. Whatever your age, wherever you live, I guarantee that you know someone who has used Planned Parenthood health centers. No one may mention it at Thanksgiving dinner or post it on Facebook for the whole world to know, but just look at the facts. One in five women in America is a Planned Parenthood patient at least once in her life. Every single year, nearly 2.7 million women and men show up for help at Planned Parenthood. Why do so many people use Planned Parenthood? Because they're nonprofit and they're open. More than half of Planned Parenthood centers are located in areas without ready access to health care. You know, women who can't get appointments anywhere else go to Planned Parenthood for pap tests and cancer screening. Couples go to Planned Parenthood for STD treatments or pregnancy tests. Young people go to Planned Parenthood for birth control. And yes, 3% of patients visit Planned Parenthood for a safe and legal abortion with a doctor who will show compassion and care for a woman who is making one of the most difficult decisions of her entire life. But just to be clear, even though the abortions performed at Planned Parenthood are safe and legal, the federal government is not paying for any of them. Not one dime. 
For almost 40 years, the federal government has prohibited federal funding for abortions, except in the case of rape, incest, or life endangerment. Most of the money Planned Parenthood receives from the government comes in the form of Medicaid patients for medical care provided to low-income patients, the same payments that any other doctor or clinic receives for providing cancer screenings or other medical exams. The rest of Planned Parenthood's federal funding comes from Title X that provides birth control to low-income and uninsured people, the same program the House Republicans voted to cut in June. The government doesn't fund abortions, period. A vote today to defund Planned Parenthood is not a vote to defund abortions. It's a vote to defund cancer screenings and birth control and basic health care for millions of women. I want to say to my Republican colleagues, the year is 2015 not 1955 and not 1895. Women have lived through a world where backward-looking ideologues tried to interfere with the basic health decisions made by a woman and her doctor, and we are not going back. Not now, not ever. The Republican plan to defund Planned Parenthood is a Republican plan to defund women's health care. For my daughter, for my granddaughters, for people all across Massachusetts and all across this country, I stand with Planned Parenthood, and I hope my colleagues will do the same. Thank you, Madam President. I yield. The music by Aaron Leader. Audio engineering by Tim Schwartz and Carl Moore. Research and narration for this episode done by me, Orpi Pade. 